John uh, chapter 15. So if you've not been with us, we've been doing an exposition through John, and we finally made it to this incredible and rich chapter, um, chapter 15, and uh, looking forward to this chapter this morning. That's out the outline. I don't know if I have enough. I, if I don't have enough, if you don't get one, ask me, and I will give you an after class. John 15. I've entitled uh, this section we're going to be working through the next few weeks, verses 1 through 17, Abide in me and I in you, lessons on life in union with Christ. So a few weeks ago we concluded John chapter 14, another great and rich chapter in this upper room discourse of, of John. We don't have time this morning to do a full review of what we saw there, but we can summarize it in this way. Union with Christ. Disciples are in union with Christ. Christ's disciples are in a relationship of complete identification with him. They're connected to him by faith. All that belongs to Christ belongs to them. Christ's life, Christ's spirit, Christ's joy, Christ's peace, all the benefits of Christ's resurrection and cross, Christ's relationship with the Father, Father, all belongs to the disciples owing to their connection to him by faith. And as this, in union with Christ, disciples have been sent into the world as Christ's representative witnesses as people who are in union with Christ, filled with Christ, empowered with the Spirit, go into the world to continue Christ's work. So that was chapter 14. And now we come to John chapter 15. And in this chapter, Jesus is going to give us one of the most vivid and perfect illustrations of everything he just taught us in chapter 14. He wants his disciples to know what it means to be in union with him. What is a Christian? What's the most fundamental identity or thing that it means to be a Christian? It is this. You are in union with Jesus Christ. And Jesus will explain to us more um, this morning and through this chapter what that looks like and what that means for us. But that reality of our union with Christ, as glorious as it is, as important as it is, it's not simply a truth to be known and affirmed. It's one that must be experienced. It's one thing to know theologically that I am in union with Christ. It's another thing to consciously experience this union day by day. This passage is not only here to teach us that we are in union with Christ, but it's to call us to press into that union, to define our lives by that union, to make it our daily duty to experience this union as a part of our life. That's why Jesus is giving us this illustration of the vine. And these verses are just packed full with just glorious truth, important truth for our lives. And so we're going to take our time as we work through them. 
So the first lesson is going to be found in verses 1 through 4. It's the lesson of the fruitfulness of disciples in union with the true vine. The point of these four verses is the abundant fruitfulness of disciples owing to their union and continued abiding in Christ, who is the vine. This morning, we're actually going to only make it through two of these verses, verses 1 through 2. May may ask me, are we ever going to finish John? <laughs> I told her, I hope not. Uh, good stuff here. Verses 1 and 2, uh, the first two verses of this, we will learn of the fruitfulness of the true vine and the sovereign work of the vine dresser. And then next week we'll look at verses 3 to 4, which will teach us about who we are and what we do in this process. But before we even learn about any of that, Jesus gives us some truth about his identity and the Father's activity, which we need to know before we can know what we do in this process. We need to know this first to get it right. So let's begin. Christ gives us first his identity. His identity as the true vine. Look at John 15, 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. This is the seventh and final I am statement of Christ in the Gospel of John. We've already seen Jesus say, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, and the way, the truth, and the life. And all of these are meant to highlight an aspect of Christ's identity or his mission, what he's come to provide. But they're also, most of these point back to an Old Testament type or a shadow which Christ has come to fulfill. So he's the bread. He's better than the first manna. He gives better life. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He's the truest of lights. And so he gives us this seventh I am statement here. But notice what he says. He now declares that he is the vine, but... He says something else. He says, I am the true vine. Now, we've already seen this word true in the Gospel of John a couple times, and it doesn't mean true as opposed to false. It means true in the sense of the greatest or the, the purest fulfillment of something, the ultimate. Look at a few examples. John 1, 9, the true light which gives light to everyone who's coming into the world. He's the fullest expression of God's revelation and light. John 6, 32, the Father gives you the true bread from heaven. I'm not saying manna was false. It means this is the greatest expression of the manna. Jesus is the true vine, the ultimate vine, the truest expression of a vine. And all of that tells us we need to be thinking, so what is the Old Testament thing that he's comparing himself to? <laughs> that he is the fulfillment of, the truest expression. And in order to really get what Jesus is saying here, we need to remember that in the Old Testament, Israel is called the vine over and over again. It's a common metaphor for Israel in the Old Testament. It was their identity as the covenant people of God, and their unique task was to be a vine. So look with me at a few passages. We're going to look around this morning, jump, jump to a few places. Go to Psalm 80. Psalm 80, verses 1 through 
We begin there, Psalm 80. Psalm 80, and look at verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, its mighty cedars, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its roots to the sea and its shoots to the river. So Israel was, that was God's purpose. They would be a fruitful vine and cover the earth with fruitfulness. But Israel failed. So look at verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along pluck up its fruit. And it goes on to talk about how God has destroyed his vine. They failed to produce the fruit and he destroyed them, sent them into exile. Go over to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So notice here, God is the farmer. He plants the vineyard, which is Israel. Verse 7, the vineyard is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. He provided all they needed. He put his presence in their midst, in the temple. His purpose that they would be a fruitful people from this, characterized by righteousness and justice. Again, verse 7 identifies the fruit. But they failed. So look at verse 2. They produced wild grapes. And in the rest of the chapter, it talks about how the Lord has destroyed his vineyard and judged them. Go over to Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27, verse 2. Isaiah 27, 2. In that day, it's looking forward to the future restoration of Israel in which it does become the fruitful vine. In that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I am Yahweh, its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. Look down at verse 4. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars. I would march against them. Look at verse 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and look at the goal and fill the whole world with fruit. I'll show you a few more passages. Jeremiah 2.21. Yet I planted you a choice vine. Ezekiel 19, your mother was like a vine in a vineyard, planted by water. It became fruitful and grew, but the vine was plucked up in fury and cast down to the ground. Hosea 10, 1, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields fruit, but the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. So from the Old Testament, it's clear that Israel was planted as God's vine. They were to be a fruitful people filled with the presence of God, they were to be the restored garden of Eden, the restored place of God's presence transformed into a fruitful people, and then they would carry out God's commission for Eden. They would expand and cover the earth with fruit in the presence of God. But they failed miserably. 
In fact, they produced the very opposite of what God intended, and God destroyed them. D.A. Carson comments, he says, most remarkable is the fact that whenever historic Israel is referred to under this figure as a vine, it is the vine's failure to produce good fruit that is emphasized, along with the corresponding threat of God's judgment on the nation. In other words, that is all man by himself can produce. Failure. But now we come to John 15, to Christ's statement where he declares that he is the true vine. While Israel continued to fail to produce fruit as God's people and fulfill God's purposes for them in restoring his creation, Jesus declares that he is the true vine. He fulfills everything Israel was supposed to be. He always pleased the Father. He always produced righteous fruit. He is the true reality to which Israel only pointed to in their failure. He is the true Israel. As the true vine, Jesus is the one through whom all of God's purposes of restoring his creation and restoring his presence with man will flow. Jesus is saying that in union with him, that's what's most essential, not union with old covenant Israel. It's union with him. If you want to be part of the covenant people of God, you must be in relationship with with Jesus, those who are in union with him are likewise made into fruit-bearing branches. People who are likewise filled with the presence of God. Think back to chapter 14, if you've been with us. And who are made fruitful themselves. And because of this, disciples have been commissioned to go and bear fruit. So look back over to John 15. And look at verse 16. That's who you are. You're in the true Israel. You're in Christ, unable to produce it on your own. He's the true vine. In him, you're filled with the fullness of the presence of God, a people who bear much fruit to God. And now you're commissioned. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. You are to continue the mission of Christ in this world as you are in union with him. You are to go and bear fruit in this world because you are connected to the vine. You to be fruitful. And as you are, this vine's going to grow. It's going to continue to expand until the whole world is filled with the fullness of the presence of, of God. Jesus is the true vine. But before Jesus begins now to talk about what you do in this process and the fruit that you are going to bear in and through him, he needs to give you another identity. So we, we have now, he's the true vine. He's the fulfillment of God's purposes. Fruitfulness comes by being in connection with him. But we need to know also the identity of the Father. So now he gives us the identity of the Father as the vine dresser. Go back to chapter 15, verse 1. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. It's literally, the Father is the farmer. He's the one who planted Israel, and he's the one who uprooted Israel. 
He's the one that sent Christ to be the perfect vine, and he now tends to Christ. He tends to this vine and those who are in connection to him. And his goal, like all vine dressers, is maximum fruitfulness. So by calling the Father the vine dresser, Jesus is implying the absolute sovereignty of the Father over the vine. And over this whole process of fruit bearing, the Father is in complete control. He's overseen it all. Jesus tells us that we really, really need to know this about the Father before we can understand who we are and what we do in this process rightly. The Father stands outside of this relationship that's going on between Christ and the vine. He stands outside of it, tending to it making sure that it flourishes and grows as it ought. And he does it through his sovereignty. But how does he do that? How does the Father specifically tend to this vine of Christ and those in him, ensuring its fruitfulness? Well, he does two things. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So let's look at these one at a time. First thing the father does, the vine dresser does, is he destroys barren branches. Jesus says, every branch in me not producing fruit, he takes away. So Jesus says that there are branches in him. See that? He's the vine. There's branches that are in him. They're in relationship with Christ in some way. Look what he says. They, he says, they are in me. Every branch in me. So these branches are in him in some sense. And Jesus says that some of the branches in him do bear fruit. And some of the branches that are in him do not bear fruit. See that? And with this first group of branches that do not bear fruit, Jesus says the Father takes them away. They're removed from the vine. They're cut off from Christ. Look at verse 6. It explains this process further. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered and they're thrown into the fire and they're burned. It's a word of judgment. Final, eternal judgment. So the question is, who are these branches? Who are these branches? Is Jesus saying that it's possible for a person to be in union with him? He says, in me, person in union with him, but not bear fruit and eventually be judged. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying that it's possible for a person to be saved given the Spirit, brought into union with Christ, but because of their own failure to bear fruit, they're cut off and eternally judged. Is that what Jesus is saying here? And I think absolutely not. Not what he's saying. I think Jesus is clearly here speaking of false disciples. Let me show you why I think that. Who are these branches? They are false disciples. They're false disciples because true disciples can never be lost or finally condemned or taken away from Christ. 
These branches experience final judgment, but John and Jesus, if you've been with us, over and over again, not one of those who belong to Christ will experience final judgment and condemnation. I'll show you a few verses. It's rooted in the sovereignty of God, his election, and the atonement particularly of Christ. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. I'll raise it up on the last day. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. All the sheep the Father has given the Son. John 17, 12, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, Judas, who was false branch. Christ loses none of those who was given to him by the Father. Those who are Christ's are never lost. They're never, they never perish. In fact, Jesus says that those who have, are his, who have been saved, who have eternal life, have already passed out of judgment. Judgment is a thing that's behind them. He does not come into judgment, but's passed from death into life. So this clearly cannot be true believers here in this passage. Let me show you another reason. Number two. These are false disciples because true disciples abide in Christ and bear fruit. So while these are branches in Christ, their lack of fruit proves they do not abide in Christ. Look back at verse 5 and 6. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. You see, you're either abiding in Christ and bearing fruit, or you're not abiding in Christ and you're not bearing fruit. There's no middle ground. True disciples abide in Christ and they bear fruit. False disciples do not abide in Christ and they do not bear fruit. And the point of the verse then is not mature versus immature Christian. It's not Fruitless versus fruitful Christian. It is true versus false disciple. All disciples bear fruit. That's the mark of them. And they do it because they abide in Christ. If you've been with us, this theme of true versus false discipleship has just permeated this gospel, right? From the very beginning. So let me go show you a couple places. Go back to John 6. Where this idea of true versus false disciples and abiding come together. John 6, verse 56. John 6, 56 says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. Deny in him. True disciples abide in Christ by feeding on his sacrificial death. All he accomplished for you by faith. That's what disciples do. But look down in verse 66. Look at how false disciples respond. Jesus has taught all this. Multitudes have been following him. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples. You see that? His disciples. What did they do? They no longer walked with him. They abandoned him. They didn't feed on his sacrificial death. They were offended. They defected. They were false disciples. Go over to chapter 8, verse 30. Chapter 8, verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let's 
good. It's faith. Hey, a lot of people are believing. Verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple, a real disciple, a true disciple. True disciples persevere in faith and submission to Christ's word. But what do false disciples do? Well, most of these who believed in him were false disciples. Look down in verse 44. You, speaking to the same group who had believed in him, are of your father the devil. And your will is to do the father. Your father's will is a murderer from the beginning. He has nothing to do with the truth. Because the truth is not in him. That's what false disciples do. They don't abide in the word. They don't submit to it and persevere in it. And they're exposed. And the case in point example now, in John 15, the context of John 15, who is it? Who is the branch? It is Judas, right? He's been in Christ. He's been mingling with the disciples. He looks like he's a part of the vine. But what does he do? He has no hope of Christ. He has none of the life of Christ in him. He defects and rejects Christ. And like Judas, false disciples often attach themselves to Christ. They mingle with his followers. But they have no life of the vine in them. They don't depend on the sacrifice of Christ. They don't submit to his words. They're not connected to the life-giving sap of the vine. The, the life and spirit of Christ are not pulsating through them. They're just dead wood. And the sovereign work of the Father, according to this passage, is to remove them. Take them off the vine. Take them away from Christ's disciples. He judges them. Cuts them off. The defection of Judas was the work of the vine dresser removing him from the disciples. And the vine dresser is still doing this work, isn't he? Look at one passage, John, 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That's what disciples do. But they went out, look at this divine purpose, so that, whose purpose is that? That's God's purpose. Why did they go out? So that it may be plain that they all are not of us. We must know the sovereign work of the Father here as he superintends the vine and breaks off false disciples. That's what he does. Why does he do that? wish I could dwell on this point a, a long time with you, but let's give you two things to, to chew on. Why does God do this? Why does he break them off? Why does he remove them and eventually judge them? He's after the fruitfulness of the vine. He's removing anything that's going to hinder the vine of its fruitfulness. False disciples that would mislead, distract, hinder true disciples from bearing fruit. He removes them. He's also after the vindication of the vine. Christ cannot produce lifeless branches. And so long as fruitless branches are connected to Christ, it calls into question his very character. That's the fruitful vine, doesn't it? D.A. Carson said, It is impossible to think that any branch that bears no fruit can long be considered part of him. His own credentials as the true vine would be called into question as fundamentally as the credentials of Israel. So that's the sovereign work of the vine dresser. He's superintending Christ the vine to ensure fruitfulness and he does it first by removing false disciples that's not the only thing though vine dresser does he does one more thing 
Vine dresser also disciplines fruitful branches. He destroys and he disciplines. So the focus now shifts to fruitful branches who are in Christ, true disciples. They abide in Christ. They have a persevering hold on Christ, depend on his word, submit to his word. And they continue to do that. Because they do, Christ's life, his spirit pulsates in them like a, a branch, a vine into a branch. And then they, they bear fruit. So we're going to talk a lot more about this process of abiding next week and the weeks to come. What does that mean? How do you do that? What does that look like? What is fruit? What do you mean by fruit? Well, we'll talk about all of that. But here the point is on the Father's activity. What does the Father do towards these true branches, these true disciples? Look what it says. John 15, verse 2. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. He prunes them. That's what vine dressers do. They cut branches back. They trim off excess, unnecessary obstructions. They remove overgrown leaves, clutter from the branches. They, they, they take it away. And they do it so that it might bear more fruit. That's what Jesus says the Father does. The Father is devoted to you as a true disciple of Christ. Do you know that? He's just as devoted to you as he's devoted to Christ, the vine. Because you are in Christ. The fruitfulness of the vine is going to come through branches. And so he's concerned with you. He's sovereignly and actively working in your life. He knows what's hindering you from bearing fruit. He knows just what it needs that needs to be cut back and rooted out of us. And he'll do whatever is necessary to produce the fruit in our lives. He's actively working to ensure maximal fruit in your life as a disciple. And the way he does this is often through discipline. Painful, difficult discipline. I think a parallel passage to this is, is Hebrews 12. You, you know it well. A couple of verses. The Lord disciplines those he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. Later it says, the fathers, our earthly fathers, discipline us a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. And we may share his holiness. And drop your eyes down, but... Later, it seems painful, but later it yields the peaceful fruit. You see that? It's after fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained. Why? It's the Father's good and loving discipline. Sometimes it's in a response to our sin. It's not always in response to our sin. A lot of times it's not in response to our sin. But either way, he's, discipline is always after our fruitfulness, our eternal good. In the Hebrews passage, I think the discipline probably is the great persecution that's coming to this church. Suffering and persecution for identifying with Christ. It's how he's disciplining them. Interesting, in John 15, that's exactly where Jesus goes. The hostility of the world that's going to come. That is the Father's discipline. Loving to help you produce fruit. But it can come in any form. All kinds of suffering. Disease. Death. Love them. Disaster, disappointment. The point is that for a believer, all these things are to be received as the good 
and loving pruning of a sovereign vine dresser. They're not judgment. They're evidences of his commitment to you. He's just as devoted to you as he is to Christ the vine, because you're in Christ. He knows what you need as a branch. And he's sovereignly over all the circumstances of your life to cause you to bear more fruit. So let me give you a few implications which grow from this. Number one, see the connection between the Father's pruning and our abiding in Christ. See the connection. Fruit comes from abiding in Christ. And the Father's work leads to much fruit. So that tells me that one of the primary ways God, the Father, produces fruit in your life is by pruning you such that you abide more deeply in Christ. You see? His Father's pruning drives us to the vine closer, more deeply. He's at work in your life through all those painful circumstances to cause you to press into Christ all the more. And we all know, especially those of you in here that have suffered greatly, it's in the dark seasons that Christ's sweetness becomes more apparent. His grace becomes more precious. His love more cherished. His strength more dependent on. His grace and glory more visible. The Father is sovereignly working to cause branches to abide in Christ. To drink of all of His goodness and grace that is for you. So that you would bear more fruit. Listen how Paul put it. 2 Corinthians 1. I want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we've received. We're burdened beyond our strength. Look how he concludes. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. That's why he afflicted Paul. I've been listening to and going through a biography about Hudson Taylor. I mentioned it at the Missions Focus. Uh, one of my heroes, man, man, I started reading through his little book again, uh, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, written by his son, and finishing another biography by him. And, uh, there was few men that were acquainted with such loss and suffering as Hudson Taylor. And yet, not many bore as much fruit as this man. Thousands of Chinese received the gospel. Part of the story, he was in China, and I wept when I heard this part. His little daughter, named Gracie, she died of fever. His words are just extremely touching, the way he writes about it. But that was not bad enough. A couple years, I don't even know if it was two years, maybe a year or so later, his youngest son died. And then he and his wife take their three oldest boys, put them on a ship, go back to England. It was very hard, very dangerous in China. Hard decision. Not too long after that, his wife's pregnant. She gives birth to a, another boy. She's so sick, can't nurse him. Within a few days, the baby dies. A few more days, his wife dies. He's left alone. Pain, 
The words that he gave were just, the house was full of the pattering of feet while silent and quiet. And listen to what he said about that experience. It is in the path of obedience and self-denying service that God reveals himself most intimately to his children. When it costs the most, we find the greatest joy. We find the darkest hours the brightest and the greatest loss the highest gain. Would that I could give you an idea of the way in which God has revealed himself to me in China and to others whom I have known. In the presence of bereavement, in the deepest sorrows of life, he has so drawn near to me that I've said to myself, is it possible that the precious ones, my, my family, who are in his presence can have more of the presence of God than I now have? That's amazing. Father pruned him, pruned him severely. So that he would see Christ and his glory press into him and bear much fruit. It's the pruning work of God for the branches. Number two. Should we calibrate the way that we view and endure trials? It's the lens through which we must interpret our life and our sufferings. Do you have pain? Do you have suffering? Trials, difficulties, hardships in your life? That's the vine dresser. That's the vine dresser, my friends. He's working in you. The confidence that should bring, he knows what's hindering fruit in your life. He knows just what needs to be cut away. He's committed to your fruitfulness. The comfort that should bring in our afflictions. We must interpret them according to the sureness of this promise. Ran across another quotation of a, another great missionary, Amy Carmichael, since Sinclair Ferguson quoted this one in his, his little book. This is how she said it. What prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves, the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp knife. Certainly Hudson Taylor felt what a prodigal waste. Really? But with a tried and trusted husbandman, there is not a random stroke in it at all. Nothing cut away which it would have been a loss to keep and gain to lose. That's how she prayed. Rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. Is that your prayer? Do you pray like that for you? For others. Or are our prayers simply that God would take the knife away? Stop it, God. Or do we pray that God would, through the pruning, cause us to abide in Christ more closely, to bear more fruit through it? I think the reason I often fail to pray like that and complain against the vine dresser's knife is bearing fruit is not the main thing in my life. Other things are. Good things are. It's not bearing fruit. And so when the knife comes, I complain. Start to question what he's doing. So 
the call for us here is to remember that our primary task in life is bearing fruit. That's why we're here. And the Father's committed to us with the same love and care he's committed to Christ. And these truths are meant to bring you much comfort and to recalibrate the focus of our life. So those two verses are the foundation of everything that follows, the identity of Christ and the identity of the vine dresser. Our union with Christ is by faith alone. That's how you get into him. You receive all that he is, all that he promised to you, all that he accomplished on the cross. You submit to his words, you bow, you receive it, you're in the vine, and you abide there. And his life pulsates in you, fills you, and you begin to bear fruit and fulfill his purposes in the world. So go away comforted, my friends. The Father's devoted to you. He loves you. He does it by pruning. Let that truth bring you comfort and motivate you to make fruit bearing the main goal of your life. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. It transcends. <coughs> How we perceive reality in our own limitation. Thank you for your love. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for putting us in the fight, giving us faith, causing us to know and believe your son. Put the life in him. Oh, help us to go, Lord, forward, pressing on to bear fruit for Christ. And we pray with Amy Carmichael. Well, fearfully we pray, but we trust in your grace. Remove from us, Lord, any diverting thing that we should bear fruit and know your Son. We love you. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Bless them. Encourage them. Through your Spirit, apply the word now into the hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You are dismissed. If you didn't get the sign-up sheet. <laughs>